Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon. My name is Dr. James Anderson. I'm the president of the Institute of World Politics. Uh, thank you for watching this uh, virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new to IW IWP, uh, we are a graduate school focusing on national security, international affairs, and intelligence in the heart of DC. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a new doctoral program, and two online master's of arts program. If you are interested in learning more about us, please visit IWP.edu. It is my distinct pleasure this afternoon to introduce our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Jeb Madonner, uh, who is currently works at uh, SAFE, Securing America's Future Energy. Um, he is the Executive Vice President of Government and Public Affairs at SAFE, and he is also the Executive Director of SAFE's Commanding Heights Initiative which is focused on securing and advancing U.S. and critical allied supply chains. By way of background, uh, Dr. Nadonner has served in, in many capacities in government and the commercial sector. Uh, fairly recently, he served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial Policy. Uh, prior to that, he served at Marine Corps University as the Director of the United States Marine Corps Krulak Center of Innovation. And before that, he, uh, earlier in his career, he served as the Vice President of Engineering and Technology at Lockheed Martin. He has a PhD from Yale in history, a JD from the University of Pennsylvania, and a BA from Duke University. Jeb, it's great to have you uh, aboard this afternoon as our featured guest. And thank you for um, agreeing to share some insights on this uh, crucial topic this afternoon. Fine to be here with the Institute of World Politics. Thank you, James. So what a, uh, what a rich and important uh, topic uh, at, at hand here that uh, comes up in, in the news in, in so many ways and uh, so many ways that are frankly concerning uh, with respect to our national security. One of the points that we emphasize at uh, the Institute of World Politics is you know, thinking about the different elements of national power and, and certainly economic and industrial power is uh, doesn't always receive the attention it it, it merits, frankly. So, uh, all the more reason that we, uh, we we welcome you this afternoon, and maybe maybe just by way of uh, easing into this uh, this this topic, um, if you could help us a little bit um, you know, with some some terms, so we kind of know what we, we're talking about here. Um, we'll get into the sort of the defense industrial base, but when when we talk kind of at the highest level. You know, the United States and its industrial base. Um, what what do we mean by that? And and then maybe relatedly, you could also kind of uh, share with us how uh, that industrial base has evolved and, and changed uh, over time with respect to international supply chains. Sure. Um, so I think uh, every country has an economy. Uh, that economy consists of a set of capabilities. Uh, some people call it industrial capabilities. Uh, those capabilities include uh, information, research and development, uh, know-how. Then there is fabrication, making, vast supply chains running between the two. And the third large element is people, people that are educated, people that are trained, uh, people that have opportunity for entrepreneurial uh, release of their energies. So that is the totality of an industrial base. Uh, the United States started as a republic with a very small industrial base. And in the 20th century, we developed the uh, most significant industrial base in the world. Uh, I mean, that industrial base was so compelling that it won two world wars uh, for allied powers. It was so compelling that uh, millions and millions of people from around the world want to participate in that industrial base uh, in addition to our democracy. And they still keep coming. 
Um, the problem is that um, essentially since the uh, late 60s, early 70s, we as a country have been through several waves of deindustrialization. And deindustrialization doesn't mean you lose everything, but you lose some things. Uh, the first uh, big wave of deindustrialization was with the rise of our allies, which was a project the United States wanted. It wanted uh, Germany and Japan to rise up from the ashes, to participate productively in an international trading system. Uh, there was some pain in the United States, but we achieved a major goal of having these prosperous economies um, on both sides of us and the rise of our other allies as well too. Then at the end of the Cold War, we uh, cut the defense budget significantly. And with that, co closed a whole series of industries in American capabilities. Um, and then we went through the third wave of industrialization with um, giving China uh, near complete access to the American economy and its extension to the WTO. The result is in a whole series of sectors, the United States lacks uh, critical abilities. And we saw this during Corona, can't make, don't, don't have the ability to make masks, don't make syringes, don't make pharmaceutical agents. Um, but I think uh, for those people that look more closely at the American industrial base, there's a lot of other weaknesses and we could be suddenly cut off from a supply from abroad and find uh, life really changes here at home. So the real issue is, are we gonna go through a fourth wave of deindustrialization or are we gonna begin to reindustrialize? Great, thank you for helping to, to frame uh, the, the big issue here. And, and, and I'm glad you mentioned China because we'll certainly talk more about uh, China in uh, you know, throughout this uh, discussion. Um, so kind of having outlined um, these, these different uh, changes over time, and the uh, kind of the point we're at now, um, maybe you could just kind of introduce the uh, the audience to some of the some of the tools uh, that we that we the United States that the United States government has at at its disposal, um, you know, to create conditions, uh, you know, for companies or industries uh, that that can be helpful. Uh, so, what are what are some of those tools and and then maybe say a few words about some of the kind of the pressing um, legislative uh, things under consideration now, or those that had been uh, passed uh, recently in this uh, in this realm. So uh, the government has uh, several tools. Uh, one of which is uh, tax policy. That's very important. What do you tax? Uh, how do you tax it? Uh, generally, if you tax something more, you get less of it. Um, another uh, issue is, uh, does the overall tax system favor uh, the owning of existing assets for, uh, rather than producing new assets? So for example, is, do you get more favorable tax treatment from owning a bond? or from putting that money into the production of a factory. Different countries have different incentives. Uh, I would say in the US, we're kind of, we've leaned heavily toward uh, bonds and stocks. Um, you, get, you can get a better return for your dollar than actually investing in a factory often. Um, other tools are, what are, the, what, are the, uh, what are the requirements to enter the US market? Every country has this. They have, they have requirements and barriers. Uh, so how low are those barriers? Are there taxes for the importation of goods? Um, and what are the requirements? Does, uh, you know, all countries have to make a decision how much reciprocity they want. The US has uh, erred on the side over many decades of insisting on virtually no reciprocity in its trade relations. And also we have, uh, perhaps the lowest ta tariff rates in the world. So those are, I'd say, some of the main tools. And the last tool is, what are the things that the U.S. government buys, whether in the defense budget or elsewhere? Um, and what subsidies does it offer industry? Subsidies play a huge role all across the world. Sometimes subsidies are, uh, are incredibly bad bets. And sometimes it turns out 
they can be quite shrewd. So we're talking about uh, U.S. government um, efforts in, in this area. Um, is it is it is it a question of kind of picking winners in certain industries, or is it more broadly, you know, sort of setting conditions where uh, certain um, industries can flourish with with respect to foreign competitors? So I think over the last 40 years, you had a bipartisan consensus emerged around the time of Ronald Reagan, the first President Bush, and really uh, synthesized by Bill Clinton, President Clinton. And that was lower, lower the tariff barriers immensely, integrate China into the uh, trading order, um, and let the market, uh, the market that existed, determine winners and losers. The result was loss of a lot of critical industries by the US. So I think in, um, from my perspective as a conservative, uh, if anything, conservatives should be empiricists. They should look at what, what actually happens as opposed to theory. Um, so I think, uh, and a number of conservatives and a number of uh, liberals are relooking, saying, okay, well, the last 40 years experiment didn't work out as we planned. So what do we need to do? There are some people that, and I, there aren't very many in the U.S., left or right, that want to pick winners and losers. Like the government will say, this company's got a great technology. Let's pump $100 billion. They'll set up huge factories, and they'll make a certain product. Um, there is a question about whether the government should be awarding subsidies to particular categories of industries, or whether the government should create conditions uh, that encourage fabrication and manufacturing. I think the better, I, I am very wary of a federal program administrator uh, deciding uh, in this sector, we should award these eight companies uh, subsidies for their capital expenditure so they can erect a factory in the US. I'd much rather have the market do that. But we, you know, the government can set the market conditions. For example, if the government created a tax break, significant tax break for any company that wanted to um, erect a, a manufacturing facility in a strategic, in a strategic uh, product, let's say 35% tax break for seven years, uh, that would be a huge spur to manufacturing in the US. And then the government wouldn't be deciding who gets it, the entrepreneurs would decide, uh, do I wanna seize that opportunity or not? Thank you. What did um, you you served in the Pentagon when uh, when COVID uh, you know came upon us and uh, that entire you know the response effort uh, warp speed and um, we we learned certain things about supply chains um, or maybe in some cases they were brought uh, brought in a to light in a, in sometimes painful ways about some of the weaknesses that, that we uh, that we have as a, a nation, um, a nation that has to compete and uh, is competing with uh, some real strategic competitors. Um, what um, what do you think we learned from from COVID about our supply chains and and what is the United States government doing? I think COVID uh, was a window into. Uh, sort of a shocking degree of dependency the U.S. had on overseas supply chains, but particularly on, ad, on adversaries, strategic competitors. It's one thing to be dependent on Canada and Mexico can actually be a great thing. It's a great synergy. Uh, to be dependent on Japan or Korea or Taiwan, those are, those are all allies and friends. However, to be dependent on the People's Republic of China is another thing. So for example, if, uh, if China had not agreed to send us pharmaceutical agents, if they had not sent us syringes, we would have had no COVID response. Uh, we would have been crippled. Uh, so this time they were nice. Maybe next time they won't be so nice. Uh, you can see this, by the way, uh, the issue of dependency on authoritarian regimes uh, that are hostile to the US and hostile to allies you see this playing out right now in Ukraine. Um, Germany has uh, an unforgivable dependence on Russian natural gas. 
This is something that successive U.S. administrations of both parties were opposed to. This goes back all the way to Ronald Reagan and Secretary Al Haig. They thought this was a, a, a very, very mistaken. And you can see today, Germany cannot act on its principles and perhaps even its interests because it's so dependent. So have the Russians cut off uh, natural gas to Germany uh, in the past? No, but now it could happen. So China supplied us during COVID this time, the next time they may not, or there may be a very, maybe a very high price that we can't, we can't accept geopolitically, such as concessions on, um, on Taiwan. It's a, just a great contemporary example of, of energy security and, and dependence. So, you know, another one that comes to mind, uh, there was that incident, I think it was in 2010, uh, between uh, China and Japan. And uh, Japan had detained, uh, I think, a Chinese fisherman or trawler or something like that. And uh, for, time, for a few months or so, uh, China actually cut off some uh, rare earth minerals to Japan. Uh, yeah. Really making a, a strong point. By, by the way, uh, we as a country, we have repeatedly cut off other countries from things. Uh, we, are, we are very aggressive about this. Um, in some way, uh, there was in Washington uh, after Pearl Harbor, some people said it was Cordell Hull's war because of uh, the restrictions that we had put on Japan. Um, very legitimate restrictions, but the thing is other countries can, can do this to us as well, and sometimes they have. Um, we, had, we had an Arab oil embargo in the 70s that put the country on its knees. Um, so this can happen this could happen easily to us and repeatedly to us. And we have to think uh, numerous, I give you an example, uh, anywhere from 30 to 60% of the average uh, Defense Department uh, military system uh, is stocked full of uh, Chinese semiconductors and microelectronics. They're not the high-end semiconductor microelectronics. It just so happens they are extremely powerful. These are, you know, these are the semiconductors, even semiconductors made 35 years ago. They are capable of hitting a target within a meter. They are capable of putting a person on the moon. Um, so defense systems tend to use things that are proven and reliable. 30 to 60% of our systems are dependent. What happens if the Chinese cut off those supplies? Um, you know, that'll put, uh, That'll put the really 25 or 30 key sites, uh, which we build most of our weapons. We'll, it'll, it'll idle every one of those, um, uh, of those factories. So in the news recently, uh, Intel uh, announced that it's going to um, fund some major uh, fabrication plants uh, in Michigan. And they're putting an initial investment down of $20 billion, according to press reports. Uh, may grow even more substantially over time. Uh, what's notable about this, uh, at least to, to my eyes, is this is actually like the first time in, in decades that Intel has uh, created a, a chip factory or planned to create a chip factory in the United States. Um, and this goes to your point about kind of the, you know, the vulnerability that we have. And yeah, in, in this, is, is this, this, this one example of Intel, is this a harbinger, do you think, of uh, a, a manufacturing uh, rebirth with respect to uh, microelectronics and silicon chips? Um, and is this, is this something that, you know, there were government incentives at play? Um, or is this something that uh, Intel, just for the kind of the sake of its own corporate health decided to, that it needed to build these, uh, these new factories? So uh, the semiconductor, uh, also known, you know, there's different terms people use, terms of art. The semiconductor was invented in the United States. And to this day, the United States produces the leading designs for semiconductors. However, the actual making of the semiconductors, uh, we've gone from uh, roughly like Roughly 45%, we're down around 12.5% right now of global semiconductor production, and we're getting lower. Um, prime reasons for this uh, are 
something called capital expenditures, CapEx. Um, it's not, not especially labor. As a semiconductor facility does not use a lot of labor. Um, so it's largely a question of what is called CapEx. Um, it costs seven to $15 billion to put up a semiconductor foundry. And by the way, it's only good for a few years before the thing basically needs to be regutted and all the machinery taken out. So what happens is in Asia, uh, there are huge subsidies in one form or another, either huge tax breaks or free land uh, or direct subsidies. Uh, the PRC has the greatest subsidies. Uh, they have the most to catch up. Um, the reality is a lot of the manufacturing drifted over toward Asia um, to, I think, a dangerous point now. Um, because China is such an insecure environment, companies, Western companies are coming to realize that whatever they build in China, they may not get to keep. Uh, I think a number of companies are uh, interested in coming back home, uh, coming back to the United States. So a company like Intel and Micron, uh, they're looking into expanding their US operations. Um, Intel has had very significant US operations, but they're looking to bolster them even more. Uh, and this is a good thing, uh, the recent announcement out of Ohio. But all, I'd also note, uh, some of the best manufacturing technology exists among allied companies like Samsung and TSMC out of Taiwan. It is vitally, we have the best designs, they have the best manufacturing. It's vitally important that we have those companies investing in the United States and setting up foundries here. It's a win-win. First of all, we get, we, get, um, we get exposure to their latest manufacturing techniques. Americans get exposure to it. Second of all, it brings our countries closer together. It's good for them because I remember Korea and Taiwan, they're on the front line. Uh, they're at risk. So they get to diversify their assets. Uh, so it's a win-win. We want to see Intel. We want to see uh, these allied companies all come back to the U.S. Now, how does it happen? The companies need to make some significant investments. But also uh, the state and localities have been State and localities do industrial policy. They always have, whether they are red states or blue states, and they do it well. They give tax breaks, they give land, they give uh, trained workforces. Um, the federal government, I think, and this is what's at play in the CHIPS Act funding, which is now uh, being uh, debated in Congress, the federal government needs to play a role to level that playing field between the United States and other countries. Um, the issue is, do we want fabs? Um, and I think the way different people in Congress think differently, some want to see a subsidy process uh, for more foundries. Others want to see a tax break. There's something called the Fabs Act uh, put forward by Senator Cornyn and Senator, Senator Warner, who are also lead, uh, leads on the uh, CHIPS, original CHIPS Act. Um, we'll see how this plays out. Uh, but the country is going to have to make an investment either through tax or through subsidies to even out this playing field. If it evens out the playing field, I think a lot of companies will want to come back to the United States and a lot of allied companies will want to come back to the United States. So uh, it's promising, but we need we need to act. So it's if I if I heard you correctly, it's not so much the, the labor costs that are, are deterring. Uh, or have led companies to go overseas and might deter them from coming back, uh, but some some other factors. Well, how about um, you know the, the rise of inflation, which now seems to be uh, less temporary and more permanent? Um, it, it, looking well, looking ahead a few years, is is that going to discourage people from coming back to the, the United States manufacturers? You know, five percent inflation rate means that. Um... Uh, some some entities are going to lose 5% a year, and actually some are going to lose more than that uh, because it's never even. So inflation is, uh, is an awful, is an awful uh, draw uh, for foreign investment. Uh, so it's very unfortunate it's happened. There's been way too much stimulus in the last few years in the economy. Um, and uh, 
one would hope for the sake of the American economy and American citizens that there is going to be an effort, uh, you know, painful effort to, uh, to reverse inflation. So Jeb, we've been talking mainly about uh, manufacturing and uh, how is it on the innovation front? I mean, the, the terms are sometimes used interchangeably, but they're, they're really, and they're related, but they're, they're, not, they're not synonymous. And yeah, is, so this is, is uh, safe, sorry, is, is it safe to say that in terms of uh, innovation proudness, you know, the creating these huge companies that, you know, their origins come out of somebody's garage, you know, and, and it, 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 we still have we're in a strong advantages and in a good place with respect to fostering, cultivating, promoting innovation, as opposed to the manufacturing dimension that we've been talking about. Yeah, America is very strong in innovation, um, in part because you cannot, um, you can't, it's very hard in America to disincentivize people thinking, people wanting to do things. Uh, but the innovation has especially been on the software side. Uh, you know, the creation of the internet, the, or, you know, the growth of the internet into its new platforms, uh, social media, metaverse, um, gaming, these are actually largely unregulated areas. Um, so a lot of entrepreneurship there. Um, but the uh, innovation in terms of the manufacturing, that's really suffered because there's so many disincentives in the United States, whether it's CapEx, extended permitting process, extensive private litigation processes to actually making something. But the, at the end of the day, unless it's a video game, and someone lives in the metaverse, uh, for the rest of us, uh, we need hard goods. The US military needs hard goods. Uh, we need hard goods uh, in our towns and cities, in our homes, in our, in our businesses. Uh, we need hard goods in our hospitals uh, to get, so should we get the medical care? That's been the lack. So the innovation's there, the spirit's there. Um, we just, we need to rebalance. Uh, and then also, you know, uh, many of the great products in the world, they often have their origins in a design that was done in the U.S. Um, so it's very important for us to keep that design ecosystem strong, um, vitally important. That's the secret sauce. But we need that other piece also, uh, the ma making. We don't need to make everything here by any means. We, need to, we do need to make more. Okay. How about uh, if you could say a few more words about um, you know our dependence on rare earth uh, minerals and and, and and maybe even uh, about uh, lithium I mean we, we talk about the uh, Department of Defense and its dependence on microelectronics um, we're also the Defense Department is very reliant on batteries and for all sorts of for, for drones for planes for you know, Chips and so on and so forth, and yet when we look at the kind of the supply of lithium, my understanding is that we we are very dependent on foreign sources. Uh, sources. Um, and in contrast, the uh, the China actually um, indirectly or directly controls uh, what three quarters of the lithium supply. So if, if that's you know if that's accurate. Uh, what what is the what is the remedy here? What do we need to do? Um, and, and and let me broaden it even more, not just for the United States military um, to reduce its dependency, but as as the United States thinks about uh, moving forward with electric vehicles uh, and reducing carbon emissions over time, um, how do we do that if we're so dependent upon foreign sources for lithium batteries? Yeah, listen, everything, everything that's a hard, that has substance that we use comes somewhere off the periodic table of elements. Uh, there's a reason why we all learn it in grade school or uh, high school. Um, and all those elements, they exist somewhere in the world and they need to be processed and they, they're turned into chemicals. And then sometimes from chemicals, whether they, they go from a gas to something that's uh, tangible and physical. Uh, there is a set of, uh, set of things that are called, uh, critical minerals. 
and then there's rare earth elements. Uh, the rare earth elements, they are rare, but they're not as rare as one would think. Um, different parts of the world uh, have different geology. Um, the U.S. has a fair number of minerals and rare earth elements, uh, except that we don't, uh, compared to our history, we do much less mining. Uh, basically, since the 60s, there's been a vast decline in mining. Um, it's not a very attractive place to open up mining because of the um, uh, number of the regulations and litigation. Um, and then in terms of the more important than the mining is the processing. And we do virtually no processing in America anymore. So China has, in addition to whatever it has on, uh, under its own land, it's uh, locked up contracts for lots of major important mineral and rare earth element supplies from around the world. Um, and uh, it outcompetes everyone else through subsidies to get those uh, contracts. And then furthermore, they do a huge amount of processing in China. Now this processing is done in a very often in the most environmentally devastating way. Um, something that no American right or left would find acceptable. Um, not to mention the greenhouse gases. I think the issue for the country is uh, we've advanced, a, you know, the major environmental laws got passed in the late 60s and early 70s. We're now in the year 2022. Uh, technology's advanced a lot. A factory that makes um, uh, silverware is a lot cleaner and a lot different than it was in 1968. The same thing goes, our ability to mine today in an environmentally responsible way is much, much greater uh, these four decades out, um, five decades out. Our ability to process, we have ability to process cleanly today. Uh, these are things that we can do. So I think for uh, both reasons of national security, economic security, and finally, for the reasons of the environment and uh, CO2, we ought to be doing a lot more of this in the US. And the same thing goes for allies like Canada, Mexico, they can all do it cleaner than China does it. Um, so I think one of the uh, large tasks that the United States has in terms of uh, looking at its allies and friends around the world is how do we create an alternative supply chain? Some things we need to do here, we need to unlock the system in the United States, update it for 2022. And then other things we need to work with other countries and say, uh, perhaps it can be done in India. Uh, perhaps the processing can be done in Mexico using the latest technology. And that'll become our alternative supply chain for many of these minerals and elements. Now, electric vehicles, you know, batteries have been a big part of uh, the U.S. economy uh, for 100 years. Uh, they are essential on every naval ship. Uh, every soldier goes out with batteries, and we all have batteries for our kids' toys, which are vitally important. Uh, but everything depends on batteries. Hospitals have batteries in addition to generators, okay? So batteries are key. Um, if electric vehicles become, uh, if, the, if the market grows for them, and, and there's a good chance they will, with or without government uh, intervention, uh, those batteries right now, the guts of those batteries are going to come from China. When you read those stories about uh, battery factories, battery plants being opened up in the United States, those are largely factories that are assembling uh, the precursors that are made elsewhere. Remember, a battery starts with, it, has, it starts with some sort of raw mineral. It has to be processed uh, umpteen times then gets turned into battery cells. Battery cells then get assembled into battery packs and battery packs get assembled with batteries. Um, so it'd be an awful situation if the United States, uh, which has worked so hard over the last 35 years after the trauma of being cut off from Arab oil, uh, we work so hard to open up natural gas. We work so hard to open up residual oil uh, that exists uh, in our geology is something called fracking. It would be a shame if we traded away uh, the measure of uh, resiliency and independence that we got 
uh, handed over from an unter from a turbulent Middle East to a despotic China. So, uh, I I uh, my my analysis of the trends are I think electric vehicles are coming. Um, I think people are going to find them very attractive. I don't know in what year there's a tipping point, um, but I do see the risk that of American cons our desires, Americans, to get what we want now will lead us to import these things. And that'll be, that would become a problem if suddenly they're cut off. So the only alternative is to begin to develop our own supply chains. And we've actually set up in, uh, in our organization, Safe Commanding Heights, we have a center for mineral strategy. We're the only center for mineral strategy in a think tank in town because we think this, is, this may be one of the seminal issues of the next 20 years for the US economy and US national security. But, um, I mean, we've been talking largely a kind of a macro scale here of um, trends and US government policy, but uh, maybe you could say a few words about, you know, companies and companies that have, have moved overseas. And, um, you know, it, it just seems to me that they're, they're naturally going to pursue the bottom line, right? They're, they're going to try to maximize uh, shareholder value. And, um, and and this this has become, uh, for the reasons that we've discussed, a tad problematic. And you know, I, I it used to used to have that old cliche, right? What is good for General Motors is good for the United States. Um, in certain cases now, companies operating in China may not be good for the United States. Um, so your your thoughts on kind of the company level motivations with respect to the national good that we're talking about. Yeah, the, the companies, listen, companies are owned by shareholders. Uh, they have to respond to the shareholders um, and they have to return as much profit as they can to the shareholders. And all of us are, almost everyone today has some stake, uh, you know, some market portfolio, whether through a 401k plan or personally. I think the problem is the, uh, the boundary conditions, uh, the market conditions. We have a situation in which the U.S. has basically a open market, and it's competing against a very capable country, namely China, that has a relatively closed market. So, uh, with lots of subsidies. So the result is companies have an incentive to go make things in China, and return more profits to their American shareholders. I think the only way to redress this is to reset the boundary conditions. I think we have to make it much more difficult for China to, for Chinese goods to be imported into the United States if we don't have the same access there. And we know now over 35 years, we, we do not have that access there. We will not get that access there. Uh, if we get access, it'll be a very short window. So there is no choice, I think, but for the United States to face up to the fact that uh, it's going to need to put, need to, you know, it's going to need to, we keep demanding equal access. After three and a half decades, we need to stop demanding and just, we need to raise, we need to raise a border adjustment. Uh, we need to have import duties. Uh, in that case, it won't always pay for a U.S. company to make something in China. It may suddenly make sense to make it in the US or make it in Thailand, but we do need some made out of China. That is vital for us. We need diverse supply chains. So your uh, your thoughts and your insights are, are generating a lot of questions from our uh, viewing audience. So let me, uh, let me bring some of those questions uh, to your attention. Um, There's a question here about the uh, Defense Production Act, which goes back to 1950 and whether uh, whether that needs to be you know, updated uh, or refined in a, in a way that's going to uh, help some of the concerns that we're talking about this afternoon. Yeah, the Defense Production Act, uh, it's a very, very powerful tool, uh, provided it's funded. It's received, a, uh, particularly in the COVID era, uh, Congress and uh, the executive branch sought a lot of funding, for the Defense Production Act, uh, to flow funds for the purchase of things in uh, for corona related supply chains and also to 
uh, fund companies that were producing the right things. That historically, or at least in the last 10, 15 years, the Defense Production Act hasn't been that active because it wasn't funded that much. So I think it's a good tool. I think Congress and the administration need to think carefully through if we are in a strategic competition with China uh, that's going to last decades and they're very formidable, uh, I think we need to re- we need to think through, OK, what is the level of funding that something like the Defense Production Act needs on an ongoing basis? Because once if, if you had a certain level of funding, there can be planning. Business can um, plan around it. The Department of Defense can plan around it. Um, but I think that's that's the key question. Um, and uh, if the uh, funding is somewhere in the, uh, you know, if it goes back to historic levels, it's extremely low. So we need to think beyond Corona. And we have to target, I think, a number of sectors that are really, uh, you know, strategic sectors that the entire country depends on. And also technologies and the manufacture of them that are game changers that give the United States, you know, a uh, two to three advantage over China, economically and even militarily. Okay. So on on the issue of funding, we have another question here about the uh, CHIPS Act. Uh, The question is, um, you know, there's addition of significant short-term funding for innovative manufacturing. Uh, The question is, are you confident that these entities will retain or source the funding, uh, enough funding that it takes for long-term fabrication production uh, as chips develop over time? In other words, we have, uh, we have, do we have more than kind of a short-term uh, incentives here in terms of, of additional funding? Well, I think the, right now, there, there are various proposals on the Hill, and they are changing. Um, until we see the final draft, we don't really know what it's like. Um, but what I would, eventually, this, this, uh, this legislation will enter conference at some point, whether it's in the next month or uh, a year. I don't know, uh, but it's going to be vitally important that the funding be of large enough size to make a difference, that it be geared toward, uh, there, there should be certainly an element for R&D to keep up the United States' uh, edge, but enough funding for fabrication. Uh, the funding needs to be able to move out quickly enough. And then the whole thing has to be not about, not about dealing just with the chip shortage right now, but had a position in the United States that we don't go from 12.5% of global production to 10% of production in the next few years. Uh, could we even climb up to 14%? That would be an accomplishment. So uh, a lot of that, I've got lots of opinions on how the legislation should be crafted, um, but I think it's premature. We just don't, uh, we don't know the state of play on the Hill, which is occurring in closed doors and is changing almost you know, week by week. Uh, then we have a sort of a historical trend question here. And, um, essentially, the, the issue is that uh, uh, the questioner notes that uh, there was some deindustrialization that actually began uh, back in the 60s and the 70s prior to uh, the rise of Chinese industrialization. So the, even if we are able to protect ourselves against China and remedy the uh, situation there, um, might we just find that elements of our manufacturing base are, are going to be exported to other other nations? In other words, isn't the problem just larger than China? Yeah, the, pro- the problem is larger than China. Um, but a prime difference is uh, most of those other countries, uh, they're not hostile to us. They're not hostile to our way of life. They have a lot in common with us. There's a lot of things that we can uh, negotiate with them. Japan and the US had huge trade conflicts in the 1980s. And uh, because Japan had an interest in maintaining a solid and very intimate relationship with the United States uh, because of the alliance, Japan made a number of concessions. Did it make all the concessions? Uh, the United States wanted no. Uh, would we have liked them to make more concessions to even out the playing fields? Yes. 
but uh, they made a lot of concessions. If you look at all the Japanese car plants in the United States. Um, that's all a result of, that was an outcome of that uh, trade dispute resolved nicely. With China, this is a different, uh, this is a different problem. We are not worried about uh, Japan or Germany uh, cutting us off from vital supplies. But I think we should worry about China. We should worry that should it uh, begin to interrupt shipping out of Taiwan, we suddenly will not have enough high-end semiconductor chips. So it's a different, um, it's a different matter. Uh, and we have to, I think we have to deal with the, it'd be nice to deal with all the problems uh, immediately. I think we need to deal with the most important problems uh, now. And if we if we broaden this beyond sort of congressional actors to um, public support, uh, there's a question that uh, has essentially looks at is asking how do we garner more support for American industrial policy? Um, how how do we do that? I mean, you have you have your organization, of course, which plays a, a clear role in this. But um, what what else can be done? in terms of kind of educating the public on this issue? Yeah, we, uh, industrial policy is probably, uh, it's not the, it's, it has a number of different meanings to different people. I tend to think in terms of economic strategy, um, industrial strategy. Uh, industrial policy often has a connotation of the government picking winners and losers among particular companies. Um, I think what's unfortunate is the country went through this, you know, yet another wave of significant deindustrialization. And if you look at the political landscape, uh, there's hardly any discussion of it uh, at all. Um, President Trump is really the uh, Ross Perot raised the he, he raised the issue when he ran up ran against uh, uh, President Clinton and uh, President uh, the first President Bush. He raised the issue. He didn't get a lot of support on the issue. Um, Trump ran on this, and he began to in, he began slowly but surely a number of policies, and began to change the debate. But the debate needs so much more. There's so few politicians that talk about uh, manufacturing uh, and what it means for American prosperity. We know that manufacturing is the key uh, to middle class jobs in a country that's suffering from inequality. Manufacturing could make a huge difference. Uh, in fact, I think a lot of the discontent right and left in America has to do with the fact that too many people live, live in hollowed out towns and there's really not the range of economic opportunity for them. Not everyone is geared to be an accountant or uh, write software, but jobs in factories, yeah, some of them, some of them are no one would want, but today in a kind of factory that Lockheed Martin has in Fort Worth. Uh, this is this bears no resemblance to 1955 almost. The equipment, you don't necessarily need a college degree, but you need to be smart. You need uh, you need to be able to go through electronic blueprints. You need to be operate operate a complex machine tool. It takes lots of training. These are very satisfying jobs. We have too few of them in the country. I think the uh, I think one of the issues we're going to see right and left in the coming years are our number of politicians beginning to grapple with the issue of uh, economic capacity. Uh, how do we how do we create more jobs for middle class lives? And I, I'm hoping that there'll be more debate. We as an organization, Safe Commanding Heights, this is what we're about. Um, and we bring together Fortune 500 leaders that care about this issue. We bring together retired. Uh, four-star generals and admirals that care about the issue. Uh, so we're, we're at the early stage of a movement. Uh, but we intend over the uh, coming year to bring in Democratic leaders and Republican leaders and ask them questions about these things, offer our research. Uh, and I think, we, I think we're going to be pushing on an open door. Um, but I think Americans need to ask for it because I don't think they hear enough about it. There is virtually nothing Americans cannot do. We have proven that repeatedly in our history. I, you know, I walk down the street and I just look at the energy of Americans, immigrants, uh, people that have been here multiple generations. We are 
we are really among the most talented uh, people in the world. Um, but uh, we have to set our minds to do it, get the public policies right. And then I'm convinced we certainly have, we have the citizenry to do this kind of work and to do it brilliantly. So we've got another question on the legislative front from somebody viewing us on uh, Facebook. Uh, and they're asking if you could say a, a little bit more about the, um, on the Senate side, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, as well as on the House side, the uh, America Compete Act, and how those uh, two pieces of proposed legislation will help improve our microelectronics uh, industry uh, with respect to the defense industrial base. So each piece of legislation um, has some excellent elements in it. Um, They'll, uh, Senate and House conference will come together um, and there'll probably be a few pieces from each legislation that enters a final bill. Whether that final bill could then attain a majority uh, in each chamber, I don't know. Um, there are a number of details we worked out. I, I, I've, been, I've been in the legislative business uh, for two decades. Uh, my experience is that whatever you see in the public document, it uh, has vast changes by the time it becomes law. So a lot of those changes happen at uh, three in the morning. Um, so, uh, and we are, we are active in this process. So that's about as far as I can go, uh, but we're gonna be working for the best piece of legislation um, for uh, semiconductor microelectronics capacity for the US. And we very much want to see a level playing field in which uh, U.S. companies uh, can invest more and do so profitably. And we also want to see allied companies come to the U.S. and invest as well, too. Okay. We have another question about uh, kind of the workforce that would, uh, would be able to populate uh, this effort to um, bring manufacturers back to the United States. And the, the question notes that... Um, you know, for big companies like uh, Lockheed and Boeing, uh, they can, you know, they have the resources to, to fund advanced credentialing, credentialing and skills training. But how will more medium-sized and small enterprises be able to fill the workforce with capable workers? Well, I think the, uh, the first thing I would say is uh, uh, no one's, few people go to school and study an area that they think there'll be no jobs in. So you need more manufacturing capacity uh, for our technical schools and our universities to produce the people. Uh, the second thing is, uh, yeah, the large companies invest a lot. I have to say small and, small and medium-sized businesses invest a huge amount as well, too. Um, very few people, especially for manufacturing, come in with the exact skill set. What they are looking for people that, uh, you know, are very, they have to be literate, they have to be, they have to have good quantitative skills, they have to have good work habits. Um, so uh, the issue in the United States is create a demand signal. Um, this is a role that the federal government and state and local governments certainly can play a role in. Uh, by the way, you have a number of companies uh, some of the uh, Fortune 500 companies and some smaller companies, they come together, they're consortiums all over the country to train people. And the reason why companies participate and invest in this is uh, they figure they will, someone will get the trained worker. Um, so we have a decent amount of it. We can use more. I think that as a country, in terms of our economic strategy, we are overweighted. We, it'd be nice if I think there's a lot of people that go to college and really they would be much happier in a post high school uh, with a post high school, a technical degree, the kind of thing you have in Germany um, where they would learn, they would work on some of the quantitative skills, the skills they need to operate machinery. College won't necessarily give them that, that set of skills. So we invest a lot of money as a society and as families and as individuals in college degrees uh, when perhaps a two-year degree um, that had more of a technical focus could actually lead to a much higher 
uh, paying job in the future and more satisfying. I'd like to uh, return to now some of our allies and partners uh, on this. We we talked earlier in the earlier this afternoon about uh, Germany and kind of its uh, precarious situation now that it's become so dependent on uh, Russian energy supplies. Uh, when we we think about some of our other uh, allies around the world, uh, the UK, France, Japan, uh, Australia, um, how are they thinking about the uh, the China issue and supply chain vulnerability? Are, are they generally in alignment with us? Are they sympathetic? Are we, are we working with them to coordinate uh, to reduce kind of mutual vulnerabilities with respect to the PRC? Your thoughts? J Japan on its own, particularly after its experience of uh, getting a uh, uh, getting a cutoff of uh, uh, certain rare earth elements, uh, Japan watches China closely. Japan already started moving out a few years ago uh, to begin uh, to build alternative supply chains to begin to reshore um, uh, more businesses back home. Um, UK and Germany, France, Italy. Uh, there are many thoughts uh, in these countries. Um, the U.S., both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, has spent a considerable amount of uh, diplomatic time talking to allies about the risks of using certain Chinese products, uh, the need to create alternative supply chains. I think what's missing is I think we, we need a, I think the administration needs to, needs a serious diplomatic economic initiative, uh, a multilateral initiative that says uh, we need to create uh, these new supply chains in the world. We need to have the supply chains on the technologies of the present and the future and invite India, the UAE, um, the Southeast Asian nation countries, Australia, sort of the quad together with what is called the NTIP, Canada, Mexico, uh, and a number of the European countries, bring them together. I mean, I'd love to see a presidential level summit uh, that comes out with a declaration that says, we're going to do this, we're going to create the public policies, we're gonna make the investments, and there are gonna be a lot of winners out of this. Uh, different countries may specialize in different aspects of the supply chain, but we are going to have a diversified set of supply chains, which uh, manages risk. And I think that would be a wonderful thing. And I think that's something that uh, there'd be a lot of bipartisan appeal. And I think um, it would catalyze the fence sitters among some allies. And I think for other allies like India, uh, it'd be welcomed. Jeb, we, we just have a, a couple minutes left. I'm, I'm wondering if there's any kind of big issues that we've we've missed in the, in the past hour that, that should be a should be raised at this point. Um, I think the uh, I, I think the I think the largest issues in the United States are going to be uh, can we get can we get tax policy right to incentivize manufacturing as opposed to outsourcing, uh, and then what is the border adjustment uh, for countries that um, are, are not reciprocating uh, and taking advantage and engaging in cyber theft of our IP. That's, a, that's really the top issues, uh, two top issues. And that, that's what we need to grapple with. Um, and I think that if we uh, could get those policies right and we could get a bipartisan majority around it, I think that in 15 years, uh, we would see a very different landscape in America. And by the way, this is the policy, these, the policies I'm talking about, uh, reciprocity, border adjustment, tax policies, these are the, this is uh, right out of Alexander Hamilton and Henry Clay's and FDR's playbook uh, and Eisenhower's playbook. This is vintage American economic policy. And I think our big problem is that we strayed from it and we need to return back to our roots. So I, I'd encourage everyone uh, not just to listen to Hamilton, uh, the musical, but uh, read Hamilton. Uh, Jeb, on, on that note, uh... Uh, I want to thank you uh, on behalf of uh, the Institute of World Politics for sharing your, your experience and your insights tonight on a, really a, a crucial topic. 
uh, key uh, key importance of our, our defense industrial base and how we remain competitive, how we minimize vulnerability. Um, thanks to you, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. So uh, very much appreciated. And I'd also like to thank everyone uh, who tuned in here on uh, Zoom and Facebook for attending. If you're maybe interested in attending other IWP events, webinars, or supporting IWP, uh, please, uh, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please visit uh, iwp.edu. That's iwp.edu. Again, thanks to all and have a great evening. Thank you.